From the Spyscape Podcast Network, this is The Spying Game. Over this season of The Spying Game, Rory Bremner will be joined by a mix of experts in the field of deception and fellow enthusiasts from the world of entertainment as they attempt to sort the Moscow rules from the Hollywood fabrication. Hello and welcome to The Spying Game. I'm Rory Bremner, comedian, mimic, spy enthusiast and professional liar. I spent my whole life intrigued by spy stories, whether real or fictional. From George Smiley to George Blake, from Kim Philby to Kim Kardashian. What, she's not a spy? How do you know? Because that's the whole point. We're not supposed to know. These are the people who work in the shadows, using false identities, trading secrets and leading double lives. I've heard about microfilms hidden inside tampons, antacid tablets used to arrange clandestine meetings. I've even been told at a party about a remote control spy cat. In this episode, I'm joined by 355 director, Deadpool producer, and Sherlock Holmes and Mr. and Mrs. Smith writer, Simon Kinberg, and former clandestine CIA operative, Amaryllis Fox. Each week, we're tackling topics including double agents, disguise, and betrayal. This time on The Spying Game, it's... Sex and Special Agents. It's a very lonely job. You have circle upon circle upon circle of people who are kind of farther and farther away from your truth. There you are in like the central prison circle and there's no one in there with you. I do feel like part of the appeal of playing a spy for actors is that it feels so second nature to them, that they do feel a kinship with spies. That's one of the things we forget is how incredibly young the people who do this work are and always have been. And in part, that's because, you know, the the most challenging operations are often given to the youngest officers because they haven't been out in the field long enough for anybody to suspect what they do for a living. The scariest part of the work that I did is wading into the worldview of the person that, that you perhaps hate and fear most in the world and actually giving it the time of day. Now, if you conjure up an image of a spy, you're likely to think of Ethan Hunt, George Smiley, Jason Bourne, or James Bond. When they're up on the big screen or in our literature, Y chromosomes are definitely the majority. And if a female secret agent does pop into your mind, it's likely to be a cliched sexualized representation like Bushy Galore or Foxy Cleopatra. But in the real world, the history of spying is full of exceptional women. From Virginia Hall, Marta Hari, Melita Norwood, and Agent 355, through to my first guest today, Amaryllis Fox. Amaryllis, I, I have to start with the name Amaryllis Fox. So exotic. It almost sounds like a character in a Bond film. <laughs> also, very memorable and distinctive, which might not be what you want if you're undercover. I always say that Amaryllis is a lot better as a grown-up. I was not crazy about that name as a kid. My, my mother's name is Lalogy, which means cheerful babbler. <laughs> Wow. And yet, she still gave me a name that no one can pronounce, which (laughs) is from both Homer and Horace and is really impossible when you are a child, especially a child who moves every year of your life to a new school. So when you go undercover, take on a different name, you have to go the full Daniel Day-Lewis and take on all that that entails. (laughs) Actually, I remember in training the first time that we did a training exercise that involved how to deal with alias docs. And we were given 
our training alias. And the first name of my training alias was Gloria. And in the middle of the night, like 2 a.m., we went to quite a large airport at a time where no foreign flights were coming in and they allowed the training course to use passport control there to do training exercises. Um, so you would come through passport control with your alias docs and be asked to defend, you know, your alias identity. And I was maybe like three months into the training program. And I remember the guy saying, oh, your name's Gloria. Uh, you must love that song. Oh, the Laura Branigan song. Yeah, exactly. And I, I didn't know the lyrics to the song. Like, you can't just <laughs> memorize the birth date and memorize the whatever. You've got to be that person and know all of the weird things that they would know if that were their name. <laughs> but am I right in saying it wasn't your first intention to be a spy at all? You know, it's funny because before I never wanted to go into the spy game. I had absolutely no interest in it. Conflict, warfare, lying, none of that stuff. I wanted to be a journalist and I wanted to be a journalist because I sort of felt this like daylight is the best disinfectant kind of an idea. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had been assigned a senior year project. I came back to the United States for my last year of high school and I've been assigned a project pretty much because I skipped a day of school to go hear my favorite theologian talk at the Smithsonian. And when I came back, all of the senior projects had been picked. So I got the one on the list that no one had picked. And it was Aung San Suu Kyi and the political situation in Burma. And I ended up taking a year before going to Oxford um, to work in the refugee camps on the Thai Burmese border and decided, you know, hey, kid, you want to be a journalist? There are a hell of a lot of stories here. So I decided to kind of cut my teeth as like a baby aspiring journalist while I was there. I went in, interviewed Aung San Suu Kyi while she was under house arrest as a journalist, not as an intelligence officer. 18. As an 18 year old kid who wanted to be a journalist and ended up getting arrested, getting deported, but getting the film out and uh, and airing airing the interview. Okay, so you do head to university at Oxford and in a scene which it could almost be lifted directly from the pages of a Le Carre novel, a British professor actually tries to recruit you, but instead you head back to America where you become a spy for them instead. Why did you turn us down? This was just in no way interesting to me. I've been I've been kind of a peace activist since I could speak, and uh, there was a lot more appeal to telling stories of hardship and atrocity and things that could and should change on the front page of a newspaper than in an intelligence report that, you know, a few dozen or a few hundred people would see. And then 9-11 happened. That was leading into my last year at Oxford, but I was still home in D.C. because Oxford starts quite late in the year. And um, to me, it brought back a lot of my kind of earliest loss, which was my best friend in third grade, Laura, who was on the flight that went down over Lockerbie, Scotland, uh, which was an act of terrorism. She and her sister and both of her parents died on their way home for Christmas. Yeah. You know, I'd never really lost anyone. I sort of like knew of the concept of death, but I'd never lost anyone that I really loved and kind of had to realize that they wouldn't be there when I went back to school and we played recorder and she was my recorder partner, you know, and I kind of first tackled the idea of death and the idea of terrorism, you know, and was introduced to those ideas together. Mm. And a lot of that came back uh, to me after the September 11th attacks. And then my kind of journalism hero, who uh, was a writer named Daniel Pearl for The Wall Street Journal, was kidnapped and then ultimately beheaded in Pakistan in 2002, right, right at the beginning of the year, which I actually think in a weird way unsettled me even more 
than September 11th because he had been so profoundly committed to these ideas of pluralism and storytelling being a way for us to put ourselves in one another's shoes and had been, though an Israeli, an incredibly compassionate advocate for the Islamic world. And the fact that he could have been taken and made to say these really hateful things right before he was killed and left an extraordinary wife and an, and an unborn child, oh, that felt like kind of a threat to the to the worldview that I had more than more even than maybe 9-11. So that was kind of what started it. I, I ended up going to the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown to study the causes of terrorism, to try to sort of understand this boogeyman. Um, and that was where I first talked to a CIA officer and ended up going into the recruitment process. So you ended up getting married to another CIA operative. Why do spies always marry other spies? Anyway, and you're living together abroad, which is the perfect segue to my next guest, because there's a film about married spies played by Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. Of course, who else? And it was the brainchild of a writer, producer and director who spun stories from the banks of the River Nile to the surface of Mars. Simon Kinberg, welcome to you. Uh, how did you find yourself drawn to the spying game? Obviously, my path is entirely different than Amarillo's path, uh, which is far more fascinating than mine. But, you know, <laughs> I, I grew up loving lots of different kinds of movies. But um, I would say for me, the sort of foundational films that got me inspired to, 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 be, to be a filmmaker were the Star Wars movies and the James Bond movies. Mm -hmm. I loved the Bond films um, and for so many different reasons, but probably a lot of the reasons that everybody loves the Bond films. Um, those movies have absolutely no connection to reality. They're a pure escapist cartoon, and I, I don't think they pretend to be anything other than, um, nor did Ian Fleming pretend for them to be anything other than pulp uh, storytelling. For me, I, I was not ever a spy. and uh, have Or no so you say. <laughs> oh, great cover. <laughs> well, I think if you watch my movies, you can see, um, in Mr. Smith particularly, that I have absolutely no idea. But I approach every movie, regardless of what it is, even if it's a superhero movie, obviously there aren't real superheroes, but I approach every film wanting to understand the underpinnings, the psychology of the characters, and as much reality as possible, even if the reality it doesn't doesn't necessarily make it into the movie. It's interesting the the story you just told about being Gloria. You know, for Mr. and Mrs. Smith, that was a film that I really conceived as a mashup between the spy genre and the romantic comedy. Obviously, it's a love story between a married couple that has fallen out of love and through trying to kill each other and hunt each other, fall back in love with one another. And 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 it's classified as a spy movie but in truth we never talk about what organizations they are spies for they're not intelligence officers they're, they don't belong to any government agency but yes they, they there's a lot of spy craft and i think because of that and because of the sort of shorthand that people approach movies with it it goes into the spy genre so how did you research it presumably you'd have had to study that whole thing of married spies living together yeah i did and i and i spoke to a male spy who was married also to uh, a woman who was a spy but you know that was really information that I could have as sort of deep background, knowing that at the end of the day, probably superficially or on the surface of the film, there wouldn't be a lot of that kind of reality in it. It's not like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy or I'm trying to think of what a realistic Constant Gardener. And does your latest film, 355, set out to be more realistic? Yeah, three, 355 is significantly more realistic than Mr. and Mrs. Smith and is probably more, I would say, in the spectrum of realism to fantasy if the sort of uh, most bombastic 
Bond films and to some extent Mission Impossible, all of which I love, are on the far end of the spectrum of unreality. Mm -hmm. And in Zero Dark Thirty, let's say, is a 10 as a spy film, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we're probably, and Bourne is maybe, the Bourne franchise is maybe a five, right? A five or a six, somewhere in the middle, um, because it has a sort of a realism to it. I think one of the things that is often lost in the distinction is that in the intelligence business, there's covert action Mm -hmm. and there's human intelligence gathering. And those are two very, very different things. And actually, some of the things that we've just like dismissed as being completely unrealistic are not as radically unrealistic when you're talking about the covert action branch of intelligence gathering, you know, which which borders on the military and there's a lot of collaboration with special forces. Um, that is very different from the the human intelligence work of going and spending weeks, months, years building a relationship with somebody so they can warn you when there's going to be another attack. And I think sometimes that distinction gets lost. But some of these films are reasonably accurate. They just sort of present the intelligence world as being entirely covert action when actually it's a very small percentage of of what human intelligence is. Amaryllis, when we've spoken to people in special forces, they've said MI5 and MI6 tend to do the information gathering. But when they want something more dramatic done, such as someone killed, for example, that's when special forces come in. And actually, very rarely do those two different entities meet. Is that accurate in your experience? Yeah, I mean, I think that those lines at different times in history for different historical reasons have been slightly muddled. And certainly after 9-11 with the personnel surges, that was a period where I think those lines got a little more muddled. Mm -hmm. And there were officers in my class at the farm who, you know, were qualified to go and do the most subtle, most nuanced cocktail party with, you know, the Russian defense minister kind of work and instead got surged to Afghanistan or to Iraq and therefore were never able to do that work again because they were exposed to liaison. Mm. Um, And so that kind of muddying of the lines does happen. It certainly happened before the church commission in ways that were much more associated with abuses of power in this country. But I think that at its best, you know, human intelligence work is actually, in some sense, a kind of secret diplomacy where both parties, the intelligence officer and the source that they're building a relationship with, know what they're doing and are knowingly putting their lives in one another's hands in order to prevent a particular attack or provide a piece of important information rather than the sort of movie scene where you're kind of like taking a photo while the person's in the other room or that kind of thing. Like that that's that's a lot less of what actually is done. Simon Kinberg, as a director, you must be sitting thinking, how do I make a movie out of that? Where's the tension? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think it's probably the reason why most what we call spy movies or spy thrillers tend to focus on the covert action mm-hmm. and they don't focus on the intelligence gathering. Yeah. Um, I mean, Zero Dark Thirty is actually a pretty good example of actually focusing on both, right? Yeah. A lot of the time is spent on the intelligence gathering. But it doesn't lend itself to edge of the seat, big budget nail biters, does it? Yeah, or a series of franchise of movies where you're going back to really see. I think increasingly, this, and it's something that the Bourne movie started to undo a bit. But this, you know, because the James Bond is the gold standard of spy movie entertainment, 
the focus has been more on the action than it has been on the uh, intelligence gathering. So where does 355 fit into the landscape? Where did it come from originally? The impetus for that movie was Jessica Chastain and I were talking, and Jess obviously was in Zero Dark Thirty and spent a lot of time doing an immense amount of research because she was playing a real a real person and obviously a very important person in an, in an important mission. Mm-hmm. And she felt, and we both felt, that there was a, a underrepresentation in films of female spies. And that it wasn't proportionate with the amount of and the importance of female spies in the real world. And so she and I, we were on the set of a different movie we were making together. Was that a superhero movie? We met on The Martian um, that we did together uh, and, and stayed friends. And, then, and, and The Martian was an interesting example. Obviously, it's not a spy movie at all, but it was an insane, intense amount of research. We had a lot of uh, interplay with, um, with NASA and with JPL, and they really helped us. Mm-hmm. But point being, I met Jess. We yes, on it was on an X Men movie that she had this idea, and she said, "What if we did a movie about female spies, plural?" Which itself is a relatively unique thing uh, in the in the movie spy genre to have an ensemble of spies, right, as opposed to one. Does that happen in reality, Amaryllis? Do agencies actually collaborate in the real world? Absolutely. I mean, cross agency is always a challenge. Mm-hmm. There are ridiculous rivalries between agencies, and there there are also, on a more serious note you know, differences in mission. Uh, Like if you collaborate with the Bureau, their end objective is eventually to be able to present evidence in court. And that means the chain of custody and those kinds of things are incredibly important to them. That is almost the polar opposite of a foreign intelligence officer, you know, as uh, someone who is used to operating in a foreign theater who knows these things will never come to court. Okay, So the idea of cross-border, cross-agency collaboration is perhaps stretching it a bit. Right. Different different, different operations and different missions. But no, certainly within CIA or within an intelligence organization with a foreign liaison, you know, whether it's the Brits or um, the Jordanians or whoever it is that you're collaborating with, collaboration is incredibly important in intelligence. Our film, I think, where we get that our most fictional and are furthest away from fact is that we have a Chinese spy a German spy, uh, a British spy, an American spy, and a Colombian agent all working together um, on a single mission. And that, I think we all know, is highly (laughs) unlikely, yeah. (laughs) When we made the movie, we did an immense amount of research on actual spycraft, though. Um, The same people that were consultants for Zero Dark Thirty were the consultants for our film. Then we also had some people that worked... um, in uh, computer intelligence. And so we had people that were, you know, writing dialogue for me in computer speak that I don't know how to speak. Tried to make all of that as realistic as possible. Talking of collaboration, Amaryllis, you were married to a spy uh, and and living with him, obviously. But presumably you had the same mission and the same briefing. I mean, you weren't briefed separately. Did you have to keep secrets from each other? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we we actually were, we were home-based in different offices and we were really kind of doing different work. I've always wondered about this. Are you allowed to talk about work or is there a wall of secrecy between you regarding specific briefs? Yeah, there was a considerable wall of secrecy. Mm. It's a very lonely job, whether you're married in it or not. It's a very lonely job. You know, you have circle upon circle upon circle of people who are kind of farther and farther away from your truth and that there's, there you are in like, the central prison circle and there's no one in there with you yeah so when you are undercover for a long period of time as you were in shanghai of course posing as an art dealer do you kind of lose yourself in the character do you have to 
almost recalibrate to remind yourself who you actually are. Yeah, I mean, you definitely can. You definitely can. It's an enormous danger. So we're doing an adaptation of the book with Brie Larson um, playing the role. And Brie is a friggin' powerhouse. You know, she could have, if she had chosen to, not only done this work, but really done any work she wanted to. And she's enormously active in in politics and activism and all kinds of things. But one of the one of the reasons that we decided to do this together was our kind of mind connection the, from the first moment we met. We felt an enormous kinship to one another. And one of the things she said to me was, I know this is going to sound crazy because it's totally different from being undercover overseas. But I have had this same experience where I've been on location. She was talking about a film she shot in Hawaii, far away from anybody who actually knew me. And everybody on set knew the version of me that was real, but it was still just the version of me that was not playing the character, or the version that was in the trailer. But it still wasn't actually like me at home with my mom or with my friends. And that at the end of it, I would come home after months and and actually not even know who I was. And I think that there is a real truth to that parallel. There are so many experiences that we all share, regardless of whether you're on the front lines meeting with al-Qaeda terrorists who are trying to acquire nuclear materials, which is what I did for a living, or you're, you know, here dealing with COVID parenting. But this this idea of kind of who are you, you know, like know thyself is over the the Oracle of Delphi's door. It's like been the challenge of human life forever. And it still is. And when I left, I kind of had this idea that I would drive out of the Langley Gates the last time. And suddenly, like all the facades could drop and I could be totally authentically myself. And it was going to be so great because I, I I mean, I joined when I was 22. I'd never been an adult outside of this experience. You know, Mm -hmm. that's one of the things we forget is how incredibly young the people who do this work are and always have been. And in part, that's because you know, the the most challenging operations are often given to the youngest officers because they haven't been out in the field long enough for anybody to suspect what they do for a living. They call it eroding your cover. Do you think, though, do you think another part of that whole thing of spies being quite young is that if you don't actually have a family and financial ties, you're almost more likely to ignore all the risks? That's certainly the case. You know, you have a sense of immortality when you're young. And I certainly had it when I was breaking into Burma before I even got involved in the intelligence business. You have a sense of purpose, a sense of mission and a sense of immortality that I think is a lot harder to to find once you have children and 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 a little bit of, of you know, a little bit of perspective on life. But it's not a new thing. You know, you go back and look at World War One and World War Two. You look at T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, you know, and William Yale, who was his kind of U.S. counterpart. And th- these guys that shaped the entire geopolitical chessboard that we live with now were all in their 20s. And I, I think sometimes we forget that. But but, you know, look, in the end, remembering who you are and why you're doing what you're doing is so critical to the work at the farm, they actually teach you meditation, which is so out of whack with everything else you learn, you know. Well, because you're under unimaginable pressure. Yeah. And 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 it also just allows you to be quiet enough that you can hear yourself. And I think that can be difficult when you're in this kind of constant game of pretend. And it's something that I've kept up. You know, I left a decade ago now. It's a completely different game from when I left. I'm sure none of the tradecraft that I learned is even relevant anymore. But that particular skill is very, very relevant. Now, we all invent fake 
personas. I'm sure, Simon, when you're at the helm of a film with a budget of hundreds of millions of dollars and you're being asked questions on set, left, right and centre about all sorts of different things, there's at least some part of you which is really thinking, well, actually, I don't really have a clue, but, you know, they're all they're all looking at you. There was a posthumous book of um, F. Scott Fitzgerald's. Uh, it was actually like bits and pieces of The Last Tycoon that he didn't finish. And one of the things was he described a director as someone who was standing out in the desert and there's four, five different mountains and they've got to blow one up um, for the for the shoot. Mm -hmm. And they ask him, which one do you want to blow up? And without knowing the answer at all, he points without hesitation, completely definitively at one and says that one right there. <laughs> and so I do think there's an aspect of that, that what you and and it, I'm sure it, I'm sure it's true because you're living in a life and death situation. So your 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 split second decisions are obviously far more important. But if people see uncertainty, doubt, if people feel as though you don't know the answers um, and you have 100, 200 plus people looking at you for an answer, it does start to erode their faith in you and your vision for the film, and most importantly, that's for the actors, because the actors really want to feel like they're protected and that, that you're going to take care of them and guide them and not let them sort of fall. Yeah, but as, as with spies, do you notice when you're directing a film and one of the actors is, you know, deeply immersed in the role, that they become a different person you have to treat them differently you have to adjust to that yeah absolutely i don't i mean with all i almost all great actors i've worked with over the years there is that that sort of i wouldn't even call it a transition morphing <laughs> of the character with the person mm -hmm. um and what percentage is the character and what percentage is the person shifts day to day it's not consistent day to day it doesn't it doesn't go 100% like Daniel Day-Lewis I haven't worked with him but it it's it's a little bit here it's a little bit there on certain scenes that are tougher more intense um maybe immersive scenes the actor loses themselves more and i do feel like part of the appeal of playing a spy for actors is that it feels so second nature to them that they do feel a kinship with spies. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, just to jump in on behalf of both actors and spies, um, I think it's not just lies and manipulation. It's almost the flip side of that, which is what I found to be the kind of emotional jujitsu. And in many ways, actually, the scariest part of the work that I did is wading into the worldview of the person that, that you perhaps hate and fear most in the world and actually giving it the time of day, uh -huh. you know, genuinely asking yourself, how could I wake up on a given Tuesday morning and think that it was not only a reasonable and moral thing to do to fly a plane into a building full of innocent people, but that it was actually my moral duty. Mm. And to ask that question instead of just settling for the they hate us because we're free narrative that's like the McDonald's fast food of making everybody feel good about everything is really scary and it's really hard, but unless you really listen to and understand why the people who are attacking you are committing the acts of violence they are, you don't have a hope of making it stop. And I think what actors at the real peak of their craft from my novice point of view do is also to ask themselves that question, is to not judge someone or make them a caricature, but to actually climb inside their skin. And that can be a really difficult challenge. Mm -hmm. Everybody thinks they're the good guy. <laughs> but some of the things that happen to you, Amaryllis, I don't think you can get away with them in fiction. For example, you know, when you were married to another spy and your housekeeper was themselves a spy for the Chinese government. 
I mean, if you were making a drama, it would be a, a stretch too far. And Simon, would the audience buy it? I don't know. I mean, I think I, it, that's an amazing. I didn't know that's that's an extraordinary um, detail, and I hope that that's in your show because I actually think that 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 could um, make for great drama as long as it was textured. I mean, I think it'd be make for better drama in uh, longer format storytelling than a feature film. I think the fact that you're yeah, this is a series. This is a series for Apple. Yeah, I think the fact that you're doing it as a series gives you an opportunity to actually tell that story and get to give it the um, time and the texture that it needs. I think as a subplot in a two hour kind of spy action movie, you know, it would depend on obviously the realism of the film. Mm -hmm. I could either see that being wonderful as a subplot, um, or I could see it feeling like it was contrived. So Amaryllis, how are you finding that whole process of the dramatization of your life? You know, I'm very, very lucky to get to work with an amazing team on this, and they have been so curious. Curiosity is one of the, the you know, the most important characteristics any human can have, but certainly any storyteller. Um, and, the, and the ability to kind of say, I don't know, which I think is a society in general, as an aside, I think as a society, we've really lost that ability to say, I don't know, what do you think? And I think that that would really help us all out a lot if we could remaster. Um, but, uh, you know, look, they what we set out to do here together as a team was to tell a story about um, that kind of uh, emotional jujitsu that you do in this work. Um, and yes, there are moments of incredible physical danger and incredibly high stakes. Um, and yet this kind of willingness to sacrifice your own worldview and and experience somebody else's knowing that actually you might not come back the same um is actually very high stakes <laughs> of course it is i mean it's hard to think of a more dramatic situation when i was at the agency i participated in one of the kinds of exercises that we do which is called red teaming um, and red teaming started during the cold war where you would spend six months in an underground bunker that was decorated to look like a Soviet bunker. And you only had access to Soviet media. All of your notebooks had the Soviet crest on them. And you spent six months, you know, channeling the Soviet leadership. And that ability to really become the enemy was what allowed the United States to know when or when not to push on the Berlin Wall. Um, and it was so successful that it was re-upped after 9-11 to try to channel the Al-Qaeda leadership. And I've participated in a few of those. And one of the real challenges, and I think this does make excellent drama, is the fact that when people come out, if they were very good inside, they are no longer trusted by their colleagues mm. because their colleagues have just spent six months watching them actually become the worldview of the enemy. And they don't trust or believe that they're going to leave that at the red team door and that they're going to come back as sort of fully red, white, and blue as they were before. So you almost are sacrificing your career by letting yourself fully, fully immerse in this other worldview. And you're also acknowledging this idea that maybe what we all think is right and wrong is just about the media that we consume for six months, yeah. right? Like maybe if anybody spent in this cavern of six months of listening to anybody else's worldview, they might come to understand them. And all of that is very difficult and very interesting. Well, yeah, I suppose it's, isn't it partly because we exist now in, in a world where facts are almost, you know, in some way not so relevant. It's about what people believe and the beliefs that they share with those people 
that are in their circle. You know, you get these kind of parallel universes. You know, I think we're entering an age where storytelling is going to end up having more impact on global security and global peace than any particular operation. So I, I'm grateful to both of you and, and mm. all of this community for the work that you guys do to to kind of keep storytelling on track as, as a tool of empathy rather than as a weapon. Mm -hmm. Now, the history of spying is so full of extraordinary women, whether it's Marta Hari or Jonna Mendez or Virginia Hall or Agent Sonia. Yet, as we know, on screen, the spying game has been incredibly male-focused over the years. The, the the actual phrase or the 355 comes from 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 a real thing that MRLs I'm sure knows about, which is, um, the 355, 355 was the uh, designation, the code for um, supposedly the first female American spy during the American Revolution. Um, and they called her 355 rather than giving her a name um, or, 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 or code name even. And that's explained in the movie. Um, uh, you know, someone that was sort of forgotten and not acknowledged. Um, and obviously that's thematic uh, to the film. But, you know, I, I, I do think that... Um, Going back to a movie as sort of ridiculous as Mr. and Mrs. Smith, when we made that film, one of the things that was really important to us, um, and this was to some extent in terms of spy um, representation, and it was also important just in terms of a balance of male and female, we really wanted Angelina to be um, as uh, deadly um, as Brad. Yeah. And in fact, actually, I think... Um, she has more than Brad does in the film. I think Brad is actually the one that's on the, the back foot for most of the movie. I think it it is changing. I think like Amaryllis' show, I think if you look at um, whether they were successful or not, the Jennifer Lawrence movie, uh, Red Sparrow, uh, Atomic Blonde, um, there are, and you know, regardless of their level of reality, there are increasingly more and more openness. And even, again, something really wildly not real, Black Widow, in the Marvel universe, um, having her own movie and her being a spy and that actually being her superpower is that she's a spy. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have any actual superpower. So I do think there's it is it is slowly shifting. Do you think a film like 355 could be a sort of a catalyst kind of re recruitment aid in the same way that, I don't know, something like Top Gun was for the for, for the US Navy? I mean, could it actually help inspire women to go and, you know, sign up, go and apply? I would love that. That would that honestly, that would be uh, a bigger win to me than any any box office or awards it could be given. But while cinema may have historically underrepresented women, as we record this, it's kind of a remarkable thing that in reality, the higher echelons of U.S. intelligence are almost entirely women. Yeah, and you know, and I think that's really encouraging. I mean, I just on that question of women and in intelligence. I, you know, I think there is a, a growing awakening in the intelligence community, not just in the U.S., but um, but around the world, that in many ways, human intelligence is uniquely well suited to women. Um, if you think if you think of the military set of solutions and the intelligence set of solutions as your two options when you're faced with. Um, you know, an adversary and you've exhausted your diplomatic options if you're the president of the United States. You can order a military strike against that al-Qaeda base, or you can task an intelligence officer with going in and building a relationship with somebody there so that if that base is ever used against the United States, you know in advance. And those are in many ways a sort of masculine and feminine mm -hmm. alternative path to resolving a conflict, right? If you're faced with a challenge 
the you know the sort of traditionally masculine approach is destroy the challenge and the traditionally feminine approach is befriend the challenge right and i think the intelligence community has always benefited from from female officers but certainly in the last 10 or 15 years that acknowledgement has transitioned into being run by female officers and right now for the first time in history CIA is not only run by a woman but each of the subordinate divisions themselves are all run by women so the entire senior leadership of CIA right now is female and that leaves me with such hope for the future of human intelligence. Mm -hmm. Talking of tropes that have fascinated filmmakers for generations, we want to get to the heart of one very thorny issue, okay? right? Whether it's men or women working in the field, here's the big one. Are spies allowed to have sex to get what they want? It's one of the things that I think is really important for people to know. Not only is it against the rules, it's actually illegal and you can go to prison for it. Uh -huh. So the, it, there's absolutely no situation, truly, and I'm not, I'm not whitewashing here. This may have been different in the OSS days and in the early agency days, and it, those rules do not apply to assets. So they don't apply to sources. Sources that work with officers may say, I have this information because I slept with so-and-so, mm -hmm. but those sources are foreign nationals. The, the U.S. intelligence officers that are employed by the intelligence community, whether they're male or female, are strictly, strictly forbidden for from any sexual relationship, and it's not just it's not just for ethics. It's it's much more to protect them from the ability for somebody to turn around and blackmail them, right? Like the reason that you take a polygraph, you're not allowed to take drugs, you're not allowed to do all kinds of things that normal people can. You're not allowed to take drugs. No. So how do you manage to, I don't know, infiltrate and ingratiate yourself with drug gangs? Uh, you know, I never worked in Latin America division, but I have that question too. <laughs> but anyway, no, the, all of all of those rules are in order to prevent those things being used against you. I will tell you that those, the rules of um, spies not having sex did not apply when we were making Mr. Myth. <laughs> Someone well, has quite. a life. Go out on a limb and let everybody know that. Okay, so I wanted to ask each of you, what's, what's the piece of spy fiction in your experience, Amaryllis, or Simon, from your understanding of the world of espionage, what's the one that you think most accurately portrays the spying game? I mentioned it before. I think Zero Dark Thirty for me, I saw that film and I felt like I was watching something real. I mean, not just because it was based on a true story, but also because it felt like, um, as it was, uh, that the person it was based on was a part of the process of making the movie from start to finish and that there was a real interest from the filmmakers to tell that story accurately. And that even aspects of the film, I think that we would say, and, and you sort of alluded to as not being necessarily dramatic, they found ways, and Catherine Bigelow is such an extraordinary filmmaker, she found ways to create tension out of silence and um, out of sitting at a computer or uh, you know writing in a Sharpie on a piece of glass. So Zero Dark Thirty, for me, is my high watermark for mainstream movie making realism. Amaryllis, how about you? I don't disagree with that. I, I think that Catherine Bigelow is an incredible artist and um, I think that that's a strong answer. For me, I think that Syriana is an incredible film in its addressing of the very heavy weight of moral complexity that falls on officers who are asked mm. to do things in the field that they don't have the full context for and are not necessarily sure are actually in 
the national interest or whether or not they're maybe in someone's business interest or or something else. I actually was asked this question at a dinner party by the person sitting next to me. Which film do you think, you know, oh, you worked at the agency. Which film do you? And I had no idea who this person was. And I gave that same answer. And it turned out to be Stephen Gagan, who wrote Syriana. And he thought I was sucking up to him, which I was not. <laughs> I, I actually didn't realize until after like four courses later. So some spy I am. He really held it close to the chest who he was. Um, but we've ended up collaborating on some things and and he's a fantastic writer i think what he did with traffic is very similar mm -hmm. that notion of really climbing into the multiple perspectives and not having any obvious antagonist um but actually realizing that everyone has some piece of the puzzle and and no one is is completely guilt-free i think that's kind of the muddled lonely difficult part of this work is uh, you know, the good versus evil is never quite as clear cut as it is on the big screen. Oh, listen, thank you. I could listen to you talk all day about your respective careers, but I'm afraid here's where we have to leave it for today. So thank you both, Amaryllis and Simon. Thank you for joining us on The Spying Game. Next time on Spyscapes The Spying Game, Rory is joined by former Mossad operative Gad Shimron and the award-winning director of The Green Prince, Nadav Shearman. We are all spies. When somebody goes to the office and leaves his wife or his husband and his family at home and goes to work, he puts on a mask. He becomes somebody else. He's not the same person that he is at home. I had a permit from the government, from a sovereign government, to be a criminal. I sit him down in the chair and I start the interview and he starts crying. They never laughed at me again after that. Forget James Bond. James Bond has nothing to do with the real world. In 90 minutes, he solves everything. Spying is mostly waiting. I've been interrogated, I've been shot at. You know, there were shaky moments in this. But it's all gone. You know, they say yesterday is history, tomorrow is mystery. That's why today is called present. So let's enjoy present. The Spying Game is available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can listen to episodes a week early ad-free by subscribing to Spyscape Plus on Apple Podcasts. Do you have what it takes to be a true spy? Now you can put your spy skills to the test with Spy Games. Spy Games is the thrilling new experience at Spyscape in New York. Test your strategy, agility and teamwork in high-tech game rooms developed with experts from CIA and Special Ops to stretch your physical and mental agility. Inspired by the CIA's operational training at the farm, Spy Games will help you develop strengths you didn't know you had. Think true spies in real life. Find out more at spygames.com.